0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100%
1: commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik.
0: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik sitting here with Aaron Cameron on day two of the Toronto Real Estate Forum. The crowd is in for lunch, so we'll have less background noise than usual. For For now, now, yeah. This is part of our speaker video series sponsored by Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, RICOM and Turner and Townsend. Our guest, we have had the chance of interviewing once before, but it was on video. I was sitting in my kid's nursery. Oh, yeah, at the right, at the start of, uh, right at the start of COVID. So better circumstances to meet. It's uh, John Love, CEO, Kingset Capital.
2: Good morning. Thanks for coming, John. Appreciate you taking the time to do this. We did a little bit the last time we interviewed, but again, that was extenuating circumstances. We were there to just talk about what was going on April of 2020. Let's just put that behind us. Never think of it again. We like to have these conversations to talk about backgrounds and just how you got into real estate. Your story is well known, but maybe just take us through it. The Coles Notes version of how you ended up, you know, the president and CEO of
1: Kingset. So, you know, after graduating university, I became a retail stockbroker. Did that for five years in Edmonton. And it turns out that's what I call my MBA. Now, it was a fantastic experience. But by the then tender age of 26, I was looking to do something different. My father had started Oxford Properties some 20 years before that. And I thought that might be an interesting gig to try. So I joined Oxford in 1980 as a leasing assistant, actually, leasing coordinator in Toronto. Worked in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Calgary, then, uh, then ultimately back in Toronto, leadership. And by 1992, my father left the business and I assumed CEO responsibility in 92. Tough year. It was super amazing time to be yeah. in the business. You had to be young broke, and naive. Uh, And those three things helped us get through those times. It was a fascinating time for a young guy to uh, work with a talented group of people to uh, really do some interesting things. Powered that through the period from uh, 92 and and, uh, until year 2001, when uh, Oxford was sold to Omers. I took six months off, went dark, came back, and then started Kingset. Uh, At the time, I had a Palm Pilot and a parking pass, and away we went, shuttling between two coffee shops, and uh, people were kind enough to support Kingset's first fund in in 2002, and then the machine rolled on since then. Why Kingset? When you're in coffee shops, you have to have two, and one on either side of King Street. Uh, The reason you need two is if somebody's early or somebody's late for an appointment, you don't want them to think you're loitering in a coffee shop. Now, you've got to tip the servers $20 on both sides because you don't want them to say, would you like another coffee, right? So I would put on my coat, dutifully walk across the street, sit down like a stranger, meet someone for coffee. When that was over, I'd put my coat back on, other side of the street, et cetera. So ultimately, when it came to naming the business, because there are coffee shops on the other side of King Street, we picked King Street Capital, which was the original name. Uh, But two years in, I got a phone call one day and uh, the guy said, you're using my name. And I said, John Love? He says, no, (laughs) King Street Capital Partners. And while it was a U.S. hedge fund, and I thought, what's he going to do, sue me? Turns out they did. So we changed our name to Kingset. All
2: right,
1: I like that. Why don't we move into where you are today?
2: I think it's probably best to go, well, maybe, John, you tell us. Do you want to go from the inception 2001
1: forward or kind of just talk backwards? Well, I mean, it's... We created Kingset around a, a simple construct of an opportunity fund, which didn't really exist in Canada at the time, and we kindly had support from the institutional community to do that. As time went on, we added other strategies, as we saw different opportunities, different capabilities, different return metrics. 2008, we added an income fund. 2014, our first mortgage fund. 2015, also a specialty urban infill fund. 2018, another mortgage fund. 2020 and other funds. So today we have a family of about six different fund strategies, equity and, and credit.
0: And actually, if you want to hear about more about that, Rob Kumar did come on and do a, a pretty deep dive on the funds and the fund strategy. So anybody that wants to hear more about that, we'll have a show, uh, a link in the, uh, the show notes for that. John, you're, you're an opinionated individual. And I mean that in the, in the most complimentary of ways in the real estate industry, my favorite panelists, you know, at events like this are the ones that take their position and, you know, State it proudly, state it loudly, and then you know, act behind it, because uh, I, I don't find that a lot of people do. You've been a big proponent of back to work for probably a year or more, back to the office, but right. for about a, right. a year or more. Right. Now that it is unfolding, it is happening, you know all the indicators are that we are coming back slowly. What's your opinion on? Where we're going to get to, do you think we should be further along in the return to work? You know, I'd love to get the update on that because you're outspoken on uh, LinkedIn about it, and
1: I always enjoy reading it. Right. Well, I mean, ultimately, business is a team sport. It's very difficult to operate remotely. I think the community, and when I say that, I mean our entire community, business community, performed super well from the March 15th lockdowns when all of us were stuck in isolation trying to cope with what we were trying to do. And you know what? I think the world did a good job at maintaining itself, maintaining business. People worked very hard and so on and so forth. Of course, you know, as time goes on and, you know, as the pandemic and the fear of COVID has largely got behind us, it's back to sort of building businesses. And and I think relationships are the currency of business. And relationships can't be built on, uh, on a screen. I think in addition, all the issues of coaching, culture, creativity, collaboration, Those are all things done live. The toolkits for young people, as they have to learn these skills, build their relationships, see the coaching, be mentored by senior people, not in a structured appointment on Zoom, but actually live with just that moment comment. That's what building a business, building a career is all about. Ultimately, people will be back. I think the message that's being sent largely is there's a growing body of thought. People don't want to work five days a week. Or at least not work in the same way five days a week. And I think ultimately, businesses are migrating to a three-day-a-week model, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, four-day-a-week model, Monday through Thursday. And I think those models will move down the road. But as you find with the integration of technology, leadership is largely three or four days a week collaborative in an office. The other three or four days a week, people are you know responding to emails, doing you know offline work, and so on and so forth. So for leadership, actually, the, the work week is has extended. But for sure, collaboration, getting everybody together at the same point point in the same time is fundamental. And I think we'll see that. And that's why I don't think office footprints will fundamentally change. It's just a utilizational change. People will be largely all in the office three or four days a week. Some organizations, like ours, are five. And it turns out we're in a competitive space. So, you know, we, we have to work harder. So that leaves people with the same footprint. So uh, that's the model we're going to. And, and. <laughs> You know, I was on a panel yesterday here at the Real Estate Forum. As I looked out at the 2,700 people in the room, I asked the question, I said, you have to ask yourself, why are you here? Because you could watch all these panels online. And the reason everybody's here is because of the connection, seeing people reestablishing that, you know, and it's all those little conversations where you say, we should grab a coffee or nice to see you. There's job recruiting. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And none of that works. In your basement, watching the screen. It's the incidental conversations, incidental interactions. I, I,
2: I have a hard time believing anybody's best conversation they have at these real estate forms is a scheduled one. It's always a, it's always a random conversation that you end up going. Oh, that was the most useful. That I, I learned the most out of that out of that conversation. I, I want to pivot a little bit to macroeconomics it's going to kind of start this conversation, John. COVID, as much as we don't want to talk about it, has altered human behavior and use of offices part of that, what permanency there is in that change in human behavior is is to be determined. It certainly had an impact on our economics. Maybe just talk about the themes that you're seeing, that you're tracking, to try to figure out what it looks like, what this current term of uncertainty and what the future certainty looks like. What are you using to kind
1: of determine what your decision making looks like? So I'd say the macro background is pretty straightforward. You've got three things at play at the same time. One is immigration, elevated immigration, which has resulted in Canada having a faster population growth than anywhere in the OECD. And while this was somewhat in place before COVID, with COVID, other countries have, have, to some degree, and with de-globalization, other countries have, have, to some degree, downplayed immigration. We stayed open. We have targets on, you know, economic uh, uh, immigrants and so on and so forth that are constructive. It's, on balance, a good policy. And so, Canada's going to continue to grow and grow quickly. So, that is demand. Secondly is, you know, after two generations of globalization where we used the world to better manufacture with a cost lens everything we could. So, everything got spread around the world, raised the level of standard of living for people all over the world with globalization. That trend ended maybe five years ago. And so, what we're seeing now is a reversal, deglobalization, which was accentuated in COVID. Because in COVID, countries found who they could trust and who they couldn't trust. Geopolitical risk. And what they found was, turns out you can't really trust anyone. And so, we're going to see an extended period of onshoring and nearshoring and friendshoring. You've heard all those words. And it's things like the CHIPS Act, because all the chips in the world, really almost all the chips in the world, are made in Taiwan. And all of a sudden, Taiwan is geopolitically unstable. And should that change, it would have a profound impact on everything. So, you see the CHIPS Act in the US, where they're putting hundreds of billions into subsidizing manufacturing of chips in the US. You're seeing things like getting Canada trying to get PPE out of its American suppliers that were stopped at the border by the then former president. It's a 911 for everybody that they've got to have greater domestic manufacturing. So, that's also going to put a profound demand on industrial space, but it's also, it's every business. So it's, it's onshoring of those businesses. So you take those two very strong demand factors and then, then you overlay a relatively dysfunctional land use policy, which is constricting supply. So you've got strong demand drivers and you've got uh, limited and relatively controlled supply. And that macroeconomic background for all forms of real estate is a powerful story.
2: Okay, so taking that general macro theory, how does that impact what you do? Running your six different funds with different opportunities, how are you deploying that capital or at least preparing yourself to deploy that capital? Are you making
1: your wagers? Is that the question? (laughs) So we look how that demand and supply constraint, where does it play itself out? The demand is a combination of residents and jobs, which actually tends to be highly aligned. And you'll see that primarily in the major metro centers with Toronto really standing out as having its greatest share of growth in both population and jobs. Then you also see in Toronto and Vancouver, you know, the tightest land zoning issues, which controls supply. Those markets are the most liquid and the markets that we find the most attractive.
0: So related to that on the residential, I think it was at the apartment conference just a couple of months ago, Jeff Thomas, head of real estate, I think is his title. He runs our development. Uh, development, yeah. So he announced there that you'd uh, put the brakes on four or five thousand units in your residential pipeline. Is that still the decision you're looking at, or when do you see the resumption of that? Uh,
1: so it- the supply narrative was was faced with three things at the same time. One was, and we have, as Jeff would have said, an extensive pipeline. But what what we faced was never-ending government approval required we faced construction costs that were spiraling out of control and then interest rates, which took a big lift. You put all that together. And we said, you know what? Pens down. So we went, we are pens down at the moment. I think this window will open up again. You know, construction costs are starting to settle down. Interest rates are starting to settle down, but we're going to see on the revenue side, rental rate growth, which you're seeing some of is going to have to be more dramatic to drag into the market the kind of supply the market needs.
2: Well, on that theme then, what are the preferred asset classes? I mean, we, we kind of touched on residential.
1: What else are you looking at? So yesterday, you might have seen on, on the screen, they surveyed the audience, you know, and it was five years out. What's your favorite asset class? Predictably, one and two were, uh, were industrial and multi-res, and predictably, four and five were uh, office and, and retail. And I always look at those charts and say, uh, I want to focus on the least- favorite asset classes, because that's typically where the most opportunity is. So let me talk about office and let me talk about retail. Office is a very nuanced story. And at the end of the day, thoughtful investment is always about, you've got to do the right thing at the right time in the right place. So office, I think, will increasingly focus on office demand, i.e. value, but will increasingly focus on core locations based in transit hubs. So in Toronto, if you're three blocks from Union Station or, say, five blocks from Union Station, that's an investable zone. Everything else needs a different story. That would be our focus for office. And you know, we see from our office customers—forget about what you read in the in the newspaper or social media—in intera- our interaction with our office customers, you know, they are on balance, you know, committed to their space. Some people are taking a little bit more. Some people are trimming a bit. But there's actually a much healthier volume of office transactions going on than you know you might think reading the paper. So I feel office will be, you know, a little bit choppy, but it's going to be super interesting coming out of this. So are you going to grow your exposure on that front? You know, at the moment, I wouldn't say we're going to grow our exposure, but we're watching that very carefully. We'll see if opportunities present themselves. Do you think there's a pivot on office use? Maybe
2: not necessarily the amount of space you need, but just the the way in which employers present
1: the opportunity to have those interactions for employees? Oh, I think there's going to be all sorts of different models in usage. All the way from, remember, up until 2020, uh, we'd spent 20 years in large tenants focused on how to ration space per employee with 200 square feet per person in 1995 going to 75 feet per person in 2020. Well, just imagine if you loosened your belt just a wee and went to 90 feet per person. Doesn't sound outrageous, right? Decadent. (laughs) But it's a 20% increase in space consumption. So we're going to see de-densification. We're going to see different models. We're going to see people try different models for different organizations for collaboration space and community space and so on and so forth, which all add space per person. And I think we'll also see there'll be a view that perhaps we don't need that suburban office because really the suburban office is work from home. And for sure, the banks have said, we don't need our, our backup facilities where they all had big backup facilities in case of a disaster. We don't need the redundant facilities because we know it's redundant. It's work from home. So that will change And we'll see things like the IBM campus on Steels in Toronto, which is a remarkable campus built in the late 80s, uh, state of the art, vacated a number of years ago as IBM moved downtown. And now it's up for sale and its values all based on-
2: The irony there is IBM left downtown to go to that campus in the first place.
1: Well, <laughs> IBM, I'll tell you the IBM story. IBM went from, this is the long IBM story. The IBM went from 55 Richmond Street to 79 Bay Street to 790 Bay to 3080 Young to Parkway Place and then to Steele's campus. 3600 Markham. Taking baby it is. steps uh, the whole way. Yeah, and to- all those steps en route? We're all in YNR and Oxford bought YR. And so I was leasing space at the time at Parkway Place in the 80s. And uh, when IBM left to go to the New Steels campus, it was shocking. I was 11 years old. Anyway, I went up to their new office and the person said, This is the future of office. And I looked and I said, like, It was amazing. And it is a fantastic facility. It's just nowhere at the moment. Yeah. So it's values on 50 acres of land. It's industrial. Industrial, yeah. The building can be scraped. When it's scraped, by the way, it takes almost 50 basis points off GTA's vacancy. It's a million square feet. And then if you look at things like Celestics' office, scraped for residential, Forester's converting to residential. You know, I could point to a whole number of non-core locations that are being repurposed for either industrial or residential. And we'll see more of that. What's
2: your opinion on experiential office? We'll get to retail next, but retail's gone through this transformation where there's way more focus on just the experience of the users. You see the same kind of thing occurring in office?
1: You know, we're going to see this develop in every kind of real estate. I mean, it started with, you know, if you go back a considerable period of time, apartments, buildings, putting in a fitness room, which, you know, you'd call a fitness closet today in relative terms. As this has evolved, you know, the industry's realized that every asset class is in the hospitality business. We're all trying to amenitize office. And and amenitize is a combination of Physical issues, uh, as well as service issues, and making the you know the environment more constructive and sticky for the user. There's lots of examples. Everybody's trying different things, and, and, and you know some of them will work better than others. And but that trend is is going like, to stick. You know, rooftop patios, gyms on multiple floors. We've heard basketball courts and main foyers. Like there's you know there's lots of examples in the country. Lots of people are doing some creative things. It's also doing things like going to Carbon Zero like we have in Scotia Plaza, going to a Breathe Easy program where we have, uh, we can prove in our larger office buildings that the air is better inside than outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are, you may not call that an amenity, but it's an important factor yeah, for the customer. Yeah, we spent a
2: considerable amount of time on this podcast talking about so well certification and
1: getting, you know, so so air. So just, yeah. push it. these certifications, that gigs over because it doesn't mean anything to the customer. So you put on, you know, Boma Best, Leeds, Well. I mean, they're all well-meaning programs and they all mean something to industry insiders. It's just industry insiders aren't our customer, which is why we've gone after Carbon Zero because people understand what Carbon Zero means.
2: I can't put that a sticker on your, your front entrance though, John. Have you been to Scotia? <laughs> no, You've yeah, been to Scotia Plaza. Yeah.
1: There's a banner that's 30 oh, feet high even, and five feet wide. You're killing yeah. me with a stick. <laughs> um, you know Royal York will be carbon zero uh, a year from now. it Will be the only hotel in Canada certified carbon zero. This fact will not be shy about. It. And the reason is it matters to the customer.
0: I just want to spend one more second on the uh, the decarbonization. How do you do that to a hotel that's
1: 100 and something years old? Well, <laughs> it's sort of like me. The hotel's only 90, but people think it's older. So there's three components. One is load management. You have to figure out how to cut the energy consumption. And so the existing steam boiler program, which is breathtaking to see, it's out of a scary movie, uh, will be replaced by deep water cooling and the heat exchange, contemporary heat exchange technology. The second is, is that you try to reuse whatever excess heat and other elements that there are. And then with what's left, on, you know, then you electrify. All that means, the only thing we have to do is replace everything. That's all. This is all today. (laughs) Yeah. Pardon me? That's it. That's it. Just replace everything. It's a $50 million project.
2: How much did you pay for
1: it? A fair price. But (laughs) when we end up, it's the equivalent of taking 55,000 cars off the road. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, you shouldn't be shy about that. <laughs> yeah. We won't be. And because we hope that it also impacts customer behavior so that if someone's coming to Toronto, particularly people with whom climate change is an issue that, that resonates with them, the Royal York is carbon zero. I mean, we spent or will be in a year certified carbon zero. We spent the money. We're getting it done. If you're in a sustainability conference, an ESG conference, a climate conference, you should stay at the Royal York. You know, we're doing it because we think, A, it's the right thing to do. B, it makes the asset more resilient. And C, it makes it more valuable because, you know, we're optimistic that customers will say that's important to me. Green premium, right? We're coming through that on all asset classes. But you see, just to push back a little bit, the green, you know, the industry has to do a better job of defining what it, close quotes, is. And the problem with green ESG and some of these phrases is they're overused. People don't really know what it means. It's a lot of alphabet soup. We're trying to focus on specific programs. The Breathe Easy, we can measure the air quality inside the building and outside the building, and we compare them. And we say, come inside, the air is better here. And I think air quality is important to people. We're not just saying it's good air quality. We're measuring the air quality. We're doing it in parts per million and, and the biohazards and so on and so forth. So people can look at that and say, okay, like I can judge for myself and I see the screen that you know, we'll hide somewhere in the lobby. And they say, you know what? That makes me feel better. Makes me feel better about spending my day here because I know the air is better than fresh air. In the same way people would prioritize organic food over or non-organic, if it's important to them from a health perspective. You know, there's a whole variety of things where, you know, people make differential choices. We're trying to say, you know, carbon zero, breathe easy. You know, there's a variety of things, programs we're doing and we'll continue to do to try to align our values and our efforts with what we think, uh, customers want. But communicate it easily. Or you have to communicate it in words people can understand. And the industry, super well-meaning, but it spent a lot of time in, in technical words that perhaps don't resonate with the end user. And, you know, while we feel good about being Leeds Gold or Leeds Platinum or Boma Best EB, I'm not sure our customer knows what, that what goes in there and and just between us? Well, I'm not sure I know what goes in there either. I just, to say, <laughs> I just know what it is. <laughs> Nobody at this yeah, table yeah, understands either. it either. <laughs> right. So, to make this work, we have to do things that are actionable and and are meaningful, measurable, and we can demonstrate to the customer, uh, to any customer, here's what we've done. Because we we say zero carbon, people go, I get that, zero carbon. That makes sense. Is
0: that carry to all asset classes in your portfolio? So, that goal, yeah, or, that,
1: or that goal yeah, or aspiration? Yeah, I or, mean, it, it is. And we will have our Toronto office portfolio zero carbon. By 27, or 28 to 27, you know, we're starting with the res portfolio. You know, retail is a little bit further behind. I mean, and, you know, the, these are big, complicated engineering programs and uh, that require a lot of, of work to be sure you're doing the right thing. And you're not just talking about just doing offsets.
2: <laughs> oh, right? no,
1: no. Like, true like are uh, true carbon yeah, 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 neutral. Yeah, yeah. The problem with offsets are it's very, very difficult to buy offsets that you would look at and say, you know what, that actually is an offset. Because when someone says, okay, I just won't tear the trees down in my backyard, that's an offset? You know, like some of the offsets are pretty icky. It all starts with, what can we do to put less carbon in the atmosphere? Zero carbon means that. We're not putting any carbon out. Why is retail tougher to achieve that goal? (laughs) You know, the mechanical equipment in a retail center is more dispersed, little bit more difficult to work on and for reasons that our team knows would explain to me but is above my pay grade it's a bit more difficult but you know this is all in the queue and you know our focus is, is versus trying to boil the ocean you know we want to take one step at a time and you know we've got scotia done 100 young will be done this year we've got plans for all of the office and that it's all you know like their Toronto office five million feet is on on Pathway. So that's been a huge effort and it, it takes a few years to do it and so on and so forth. Royal York, I mean, that's like, that's a big project. Yeah. So that's been a big focus. And I think will be a big statement to the industry, right? Because you look at a 90-year-old hotel, a heritage hotel, and say, you know what? Yeah, actually, we're zero carbon. Well, that's pretty amazing. But, you know, we continue to, to do these projects. And I'll tell you, the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, CIB, has helped make these things happen. Because part of it is, you know, it is super expensive. It's not easy to necessarily get the credit to do this product. And, you know, they're providing the credit based on your performance of decarbonizing. The interest rates and so on can be quite attractive, assuming you deliver what you promised. Maybe use a chance to uh,
0: segue into into retail, your other favorite asset class that uh, maybe is not attracting the attention that you
1: believe it should. Why are you long retail? So I'm always attracted to, to the space no one else is. Retail has had, uh, you know, a remarkable destruction in value over the last few years. It turns out when you close the doors that it's unhelpful, right? So, you know, the appraisers had, had their way with retail in 2021. And 19 wasn't pretty either. So there's been a big reduction in value. But what we're seeing is COVID has really taught retailers the importance of the omnichannel and the bricks presence. And they've really rethought what that store meant. There was a time when a retail store was a point of purchase. The retail store today or in the future is a point of purchase, but it's also a service depot, a return depot, it's brand development, it's last mile distribution. It's so many more things to the retailer. And it's interesting. If you go on a website, there's many websites now where if you're in the city, you can get two-hour delivery. Well, they do that because it, Lulu, two-hour delivery if you're in the right location. They just wrap it. Boom. Phone a bike courier. You just spend <laughs> the extra $12. And you've got it. They're using all of their tools to uh, integrate channels and be much better uh, more productive and more profitable retailers. But they have to have that physical location. So we're seeing retailers invest in and rethink how they do that. Just look at what Ikea is doing with their evolving urban stores and concepts. Pretty interesting. But everybody's got a strategy, or at least all the leaders have a strategy, how to integrate bricks and clicks. And today we see retail augments is the highest they've been in a number of years you know, while the rental economics are still a bit grumpy, you know, improved occupancy always precedes improved rents. So I think we'll see a stabilization and ultimately a recovery in retail. And we will be sitting here five years from now when they put up that chart and it shows retail was at the bottom of the pile. People say, that didn't work out that way. (laughs) Same question that too, are you increasing your exposure to retail? So, You know, we're we're looking at adding exposure to every asset class based on different opportunities. We will undoubtedly add everything as we go forward, but it's all situationally based. So, we don't make broad asset class allocation sort of shifts or… Percentage goals and that kind of stuff? No, we don't. Just Uh, opportunity
2: by opportunity? Right.
1: I mean, we're we're more looking at… I mean, let me rephrase it. We would be open today to acquiring an asset in any five asset classes, any of the five. Fifth, I guess, being hospitality.
0: I was about to ask. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, fifth being hospitality. You know, like we would do something everywhere, but it's all situationally specific. You know, depending on the merits of the particular investment, we have different uh, buckets that it would best suit. So whether it's a long-term hold or maybe it's an event-driven strategy or it's a credit strategy, you know, whatever. So we have different sources of capital to address every issue, every situation. But it starts with, is the individual deal, like, does it have merit? So is it well-sponsored? Does it have a thoughtful strategy? Is there, is there visibility to value creation? Those kinds of things. So we don't target one thing or target the other. We, we target thoughtful partners, thoughtful transactions.
2: You just answered the question
1: for, are you interested
2: in land? What are you looking for? Apartment developments? We'll just, we can now just skip over all of that. It's all opportunistic based
1: on the way the numbers crunch. Yeah, I mean, we, we've never put up a spreadsheet and been smart enough to say six markets, five asset classes. Let's pick uh, thirty percentages, and that's what we want to do. Yeah, you can't work that way. Well, you have to be nimble, don't you? you? Have to be flexible. Well, I yeah, I mean, you know, to me, to have an intake of opportunities, you've got to evaluate everything coming in. And if you see things, you say, well, that makes a lot of sense to me." Then we look at, say, you know, which fund does that strategy fit, and then go make it happen. We're we're gonna run out of time. but I, I have a kind of more of a personal question,
2: John, for you that I think hopefully the answer is interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I leave that to you. What do you spend your time on, one, just day to day? Like, more generally, how is your time bucketed? What's the fun part of that day? And what's the most challenging part of that day? So,
1: you know, I had the opportunity to build a good franchise. Most importantly, gather a strong team, which largely runs the business. So, you know, I have the option to spend my time on what gives me energy. And, you know, those tends to be, you know, big ideas and thinking about, you know, fundraising, relationships, doing things that are outwardly facing for the business and, and trying to offer value where I can. I do nothing that takes away energy. So if there's no challenging parts of your job? No. <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't think of those terms. I think of them in this term. If I ever see something where I, where I think it's challenging and I don't like to do it, I know for a fact there's someone better to do it than me. So then I say, who's the right person to do this? Because by definition, I think there's a near 100% correlation between things you like to do and things you do well. And so if there's something that I don't like to do or whatever, I know I'm not going to be the best one to do it. My job then is to say, who do I think is the best person in our shop to go do that? And part of aligning jobs around, like my job is trying to make people successful, right? And making people successful is is trying to uh, align scopes of work around things that give them energy. They like to do, they look forward to they get excited about Because everybody gets excited about different things. And uh, God knows if we're all the same, it would be quite a mess.
2: Well, let me put it a different way. I gather, and I think a lot of people in your sort of of roles, you like to problem solve. You get the excitement from solving problems and and theorizing and coming up with big ideas and figuring out how to deploy them. What are the hardest problems that you have to solve in your
1: day-to-day? It's all people. The most important problems are trying to figure out who's the right person to solve that problem. (laughs) I think... And I'm probably a glass-half-full guy, so I'm probably not the best guy to answer this question. Because to me, you know, life is, uh, you know, every day I've been presented with interesting challenges and fun things to do. If I see a tough problem, that just gives me more energy because I think it's probably more complex and takes two more minutes to think about it. But when I get a tough problem or a really tough problem, I reach out and call a friend. And so, you know, I'll, I'll put together some people inside the business and say, look, this is difficult. And you know what? You get that energy talking around a problem. And what I love to see is how that iterates a solution, or at least options.
0: Uh, John, we are at a time, and I, I believe you have more speaker duties here at the forum today. We don't keep you uh, away from that. Thanks, of course, to First National for uh, powering the podcast, the Toronto Real Estate Forum for hosting us here today for the speaker video series that we've uh, enjoyed doing all day long. The sponsors for this episode are Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, Rycom, and Turner & Townsend. Most of all, John Love, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here.
2: Have a great one. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we talk about John Love and the conversation we just had. Well, that was fun. Second time with one of the more prominent prominent individuals in our industry. You could almost call him a celebrity, or you, you probably can call him a celebrity in our industry. There were a couple of times where you just find yourself listening. When we're doing these episodes, you got to sit here and you are listening and you got this opportunity, this amazing, incredible opportunity to ask whatever comes to mind. And so regularly when our guests are speaking, well. Almost every time our guests are speaking, you're listening, but you're also formulating the follow-up. And either I'm thinking, what is Adam thinking? Or I'm thinking, what am I thinking? Or I'm thinking, what's the next place to go in the conversation? Or what do I think is an interesting question to follow up what they're saying? There were a couple of times there where John was speaking and he'd stop speaking. And Adam and I were just looking at each other. Do you find yourself just listening? Just enjoying the moment. Yeah, We spent a lot of time listening to people, experts and brilliant people in this industry talk. And yet he's just got this way about it. And it might be because he's John Love, the celebrity in real estate too. But just the way that he comes across with his opinions, the way that he puts the logic together and then a sort of a simple, eloquent, reasonable way, you kind of find yourself, well, yeah, like, that's right. And then he stops talking. <laughs> like, I don't even know where to go from here.
0: Well, you know, he's here extolling the virtues of the two asset classes that are not preferred right now. He's talking about office and retail and you're nodding your head. And it's like, yeah, I can see
2: this. I'm buying what he's selling. He definitely has that way about him. And he mentioned it. I was kind of poking around on what keeps you busy, what challenges you. And he said, I don't do the things that challenge me. Or that's a bad way of putting it. Drain your energy. That's yeah, what it was. Right. Meaning he gets energy from Only solving those problems. Only things that are really useful. And one of the major things he said is being out publicly and promoting Kingset and what Kingset believes in and what they're doing. And clearly, he's very, very good at that. If you don't, go check out his LinkedIn profile. Follow him on all the different social media platforms that he's on. He's very, very outspoken. And for good reason, because he puts things very clearly and it's very informative and persuasive. Yeah, not afraid to take a position, not afraid to put it out there,
0: does not place cars close to his chest, which I love. I love the fact that he'll just open up his entire insight to something because it is captivating. Because a lot of people in real estate do treat it like a proprietary
2: secret. You're right. He absolutely is more transparent. And I was thinking that as he was talking about, I'm zigging when everyone else is zagging. I'm going towards retail and office and here's my investment strategies. And I was thinking like, is this calculated or not calculated? It clearly is very calculated, right? Maybe he's saying to himself, these weird things go on in my brain. As he was talking, I was thinking, he's decided that it's better for my investors to know my strategy than it is a detriment for my competitors to know my strategy. Because if he doesn't say any of this stuff, (laughs) the investors don't know, but the competitors don't know. But if he says this stuff, they both know. And he's saying, it's of greater good to me that my investors know than harm that my competitors know. And I'll still execute on this anyway, and I'm an execute so. And I'm the ability to execute and you can all try to execute too, but I'll do it better. And I mean, we referenced it during the recording,
0: but so much more enjoyable with a guy like that who's got a fair bit of charm in person. It just connects so much better. A lot of fun to talk to you. The first time was in COVID bunker mode, you know, washing our groceries. I, I think I had a ponytail. And Aaron had gone uh, <laughs> a little wild, a little feral in his look by that point. Anyways, enough about that. Thanks, John, for coming on and